I think science, a lot of scientific endeavors, having ideas that come come out out of a spontaneous or and maybe an improv experience, mm. and then using that to advance the project or advance the story. I'm David Oti, and this is the power of story and science, a mix of content and conversations on how to bring your science to life through powerful presentations. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation with scientist and storyteller Ray Moore. You'll hear how Ray has used story to convey challenging scientific ideas to a wide range of audiences, both technical and non-technical. And not only that, but he also understands the entertainment and cultural value of storytelling and the relationship between telling a story and advancing science. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of The Power of Story and Science, a bi-weekly program aimed at people who give technical presentations. I'm David Odie, your host, and I have an engineering background and a speaking background myself, so I love being able to have conversations with people about story and science and the intersection of those two. And that's why I'm very pleased this evening that I have as my guest, Ray Moore, a scientist and storyteller. You're going to hear more about that from him. And we're going to further develop the theme that there is a place for storytelling, even in the most technical of presentations, and that there is something about telling stories that just connects with the way our mind is wired. I'd like to start by asking you, Ray, if you would tell us a little bit about your professional background. Certainly, certainly, David. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me this evening. My professional background goes all the way from my employment right out of school in the Department of of Health in Denver as your local friendly restaurant inspector. Mm -hmm. And I did that for a number of years and learned a lot about how to communicate the ins and outs of bacteriology to Greek restaurant owners and (laughs) their concerns about making money. I left that job completed my master's in public administration, went to work for the state of Colorado in the air pollution program at the State Department of Health. I was hired when Denver had the worst air quality in the country, even worse than Los Angeles. And part of the group I was hired with was obviously charged. I was hired as a scientist and planner to put together a plan that would address and clean up Denver's air. It's quite an adventure, but we actually got a number of successes over the years. And by the time I retired, Denver had cleaned up most of the dirty air areas throughout the state. And Mm -hmm. uh, we were actually then working on cleaning up the national parks in the West. So cleaning up the national parks, national parks. Yes, We, We think of those as having clean air and not being full of smog. Well, the thing obviously, there's it, more to the story than that. Yeah. Well, the thing of it is, yeah. If you re- remember recently the the dust cloud from the Sierras, they traveled across the ocean 
and impacted the U.S. Well, we have a lot of power plants and a lot of other factories and automobiles that emit pollution that stays up in the air and travels into the national parks. And ah, one, of okay. our, one of our multi-state projects was to come up with a series of intercoordinated programs between the states to clean up places like Yellowstone, Rocky Mountain National Park, and other areas in the West. They're all the national parks within a 10 to 20-year period. That's when I left. Wow. Okay. But in the interim, I also worked or did a lot of part-time teaching. I taught for, I taught 10 years at DeVry University, which is a private university around the United States. I taught environmental science and, mm-hmm. of all things, public speaking. And so, public speaking. Yeah, I've been involved in uh, a few things. A few things, yes. And you're involved in Toastmasters, which is how I know you. Yes, yes, that's right. Okay. I joined Toastmasters actually just after I started to uh, work in the air division. Okay. I was, of course, in an area that was very scientific and technical, and I had to give a number of technical presentations. Well, one day a call came in from a school to come out and explain the air pollution problem in Denver. Well, I, I had studied enough so I could do that. So I went out there and <sighs> my uh, s- skills and explanation were not very either not very sharp that day or i just got confused and it was not a good presentation kids didn't seem to get too much out of it and at the end the teacher thanked me and i walked walked out as i walked out though one of the kids came up to me and said that was a good talk if you keep at it you'll really get good at it and (laughs) that was my motivation and I, i continued to work at making giving making presentations that were that that taught and, and made the point that we needed to in front of our elected boards and officials, as well as communicating important ideas to local governments and citizens. And so when you're trying to communicate those important ideas to local governments and citizens, obviously there's a lot of scientific principles involved. Right, right. And And you found ways to convey those using story? Oh, exactly, exactly. Uh, one of the, as a matter of fact, I had done, I started doing this as sort of one of my sole assignments in our office was to be the lead person in going in and communicating with local communities, local elected officials about air quality issues they were having. Mm-hmm. In Colorado at the time, we were having things like pig farm and agricultural operation problems. Oh. And that kind of thing, as well as towns in the in the mountains that were having problems with wood smoke and dust and all the, sure. all that sort of thing. Yeah. So yes, I had to go in and working with my technical staff, explain to them what they needed to do to help us under, define the problem for them, but also explain to an average elected county commissioner what we were doing, what we wanted to do, what health standards meant in their terms, what. Mm-hmm. What the safe levels of pollutants, of which there were no safe levels, mm-hmm. meant. And those mm-hmm. are the kinds of stories and examples I had to develop in the job I was doing with communities. I see. Okay. And then you got uh, involved more deeply in storytelling um, as a speaking communication form of its own. 
That's right. That's right. Well, I was always, as I said, I was always doing storytelling, although I didn't really call it that in my job. I just learned that people responded more to stories when I explained a problem and what other communities had done. But then I found out about a group here in Denver that tells stories to school kids, tell stories to seniors and that kind of thing. And I checked it out and signed up. The group's called Spellbinders. They're mainly people who are retired and they do go into schools and tell stories to kids, kind of an inter intergenerational thing where mm. the seniors communicate ideas and uh, old folk tales and legends to kids and talk about the, talk about them, help them understand what the store where the stories came from and, and what, what they mean today. Okay, so folk tales and and uh, all kinds of stories for their uh, not just entertainment value, I gather, but also for their cultural and historical value. Exactly. Yeah, I and talking with seniors the same way. I we uh, have had a number of programs that I did with friends. We would go into uh, healthcare facilities. And there would be a lot of seniors there. And we would tell them stories from the history of Colorado. Basically, when you tell, learn to tell a story from, say, an incident in history, mm -hmm. what you need to do is research all the details you can, mm -hmm. put the uh, ideas together and how you think it happened, and then work that into a story that has all the important parts of a story, mm -hmm. an initiating point, a conflict or a big problem and a resolution an so initiating point a conflict or problem and a resolution so there are particular there are particular structural elements that you're looking for in telling right. a story and that's what i look for in all story. the stories i read i it helps see. Me learn stories too actually tell me more about that well as i read a story to tell and that's how any story that I tell begins. I usually find a, uh, it written down someplace, maybe even just a few paragraphs. But I look at what what the story is about and sort of the issue or the problem with inherent in the story and how it was solved. So I take uh, that information and run it through the channels of my imagination and mm -hmm. come up with a story. One of my favorite stories is is not so much my imagination, but I have been struck over and over again by the observ observation powers and the imaginations of the early peoples, the Native American. Oh. And one of the stories I tell, is, and it's a short one, let me, let me quickly pass it on to you, is a story of the star in the cottonwood. Star in the cottonwood. Okay. Yeah, if, you, if you take a cottonwood branch, the end end of a not not a main trunk, but if you take a branch off a cottonwood tree and you slice through it laterally at the growth growth ring out towards the end of the branch and open it up, maybe sand it down a little bit, you can see a star. Really? And, and yeah, it's just like the star in an apple, but uh, it's definitely a little star. And the question question to me is, how and what did the Native peoples think about that star. Hmm. Well, the story they came up with a story, obviously, a story that fit their their religion. The Arapaho people felt that everything came from the earth, mm -hmm. and we, I think everyone can understand that. 
in the spring, the grasses grow and, and all that sort of thing, and the animals and everything eat the grasses. It, it seems like a natural cycle to have everything come from the earth. True. Well, they felt that uh, stars did too. And uh, the stars were all kind of underground. And when there needed to be more stars in the sky, what the uh, stars would do would climb up through the branches of the cottonwood trees that were quite common along the the river, the plains and the creeks uh, of eastern Colorado or North Dakota, South Dakota, all the, the Midwest. And they would come to reside in their little little uh, growth growth rings. Well, the legend has it that when the great sky spirit wanted to have more stars, he or she, I guess she, would contact the spirit of the wind, and she would ask the wind for help. And the wind would blow one night. If you've ever been out on the plains during a windstorm, <laughs> everything blows off the trees and there's little little branches and twigs of cottonwood everywhere. Uh-huh. Well, the stars are sitting there in, in these twigs, but they still can't get out. So this uh-huh. is where the people came in. They have to help. So the storyteller, the shaman, would uh, gather all the children. Mm-hmm on a winter's night and the twigs had been there all fall had dried up Mm -hmm. he would go out and they would find the twigs and he would show them first where the star was and they would all break their twigs and they would know how to break the twig and release the star and he would tell them okay let's all create our stars aiming at a certain direction in the sky where there's no stars and you will have your contribution to the heavens. Hmm. At least that's the way I understood the legend. And that today, I think, is if you look it up, that's what, that's what it's about. It's about imagining a solution to a problem mm-hmm. and then uh, developing a story that fits that. Now, mm-hmm. we all know there's a lot of things that uh, need, need, need now to be added to the story about uh, the science of the heavens and all sure. that. But, given that they didn't have any any instrumentation, any, any right. written language. Sounds like it's a pretty good ima- imag- imaginative exercise to me. Given given the challenge that they had to explain something that uh, to this day to so many people seems so inexplicable, <clears throat> they came up with a, an artful way to do that. I like yeah. that story. And a way that involved the, the people, especially the, the children in the village. So they had a respect for the, children. for the heavens. Wow, that's that's quite an interesting well, that's, story. That's one of the stories I tell. And I really get si- excited. You can tell I get a little excited. <laughs> you do. And I can tell you enjoy I it. I think that's one of the things that uh, I enjoy about it, too. I enjoy about it, but it seems to connect with other people, too. I, I have a, I've always had a way of making something interesting. And uh, that's, mm. I use that in storytelling. Use the power of storytelling to make something interesting. And I'm sure you've done that in your scientific communication as well. Ray, we're going to take a short break. Sure. Because I do have a a word from our sponsor coming up. And when we come back, uh, I believe you have another story that you uh, would share with us. Certainly. You told us about the sky full of stars. And I'd like to know more from you when we come back about 
this structure of story that you look for and how that makes it more memorable in the telling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's that's a key key idea people need to, yes. to think about. I agree and, with that. Develop more in their in their efforts to bring stories into what they do. Exactly. All right. Well, this is The Power of Story and Science. I'm David Ote, and my guest is Ray Moore, and we will be back in just a moment. You are a knowledgeable expert, and you want your expertise to make a difference to your audience, but you can't see them and gauge their reactions. Therefore, you need new tools for engaging that unseen audience. Hi, I'm David Odie, offering you a way to pick up those tools. In my new self-paced online course, you will discover three ways to improve your story, one fascinating tool for hooking your audience's attention, and eight details in your physical environment that will set you apart from other virtual presenters. Today's technical presentations are going virtual, and that means you can reach a wider audience as long as you understand how to serve that audience. So join me for the online course, Own the Virtual Stage. Confidently connect with an unseen audience. Just go to ownthevirtualstage.com for details. And welcome back to The Power of Story and Science with your host, David Odie, and my guest today, Ray Moore an environmental scientist who is talking to us about the combination of science and storytelling. And we were just talking about the structure of stories and how that makes it makes them not only more understandable for the listener, but also more memorable for the teller. How do you, how do you make sure that you're working an appropriate type or amount of structure into your stories, Ray? Well, I think what I always try and do in a story is make sure, well, the story has to be simple, but well communicated. If Mm -hmm. I'm telling a story, say a personal experience story, I don't get involved in a lot of details, frivolous, unnecessary details. I winnow it down to a basic idea. Uh, there's a story I've told in Toastmasters clubs about a camping trip my wife and I took over Memorial Day several years ago with a with a, with a couple. It was a boating trip, mm-hmm. and the boat blew away in the in the course of an evening storm and left us stranded. Oh no! So that's the conflict right there. That's the problem. Right. That's also the initiating moment. Mm-hmm. How did we solve that? Of course, the solution was pretty simple, but there's a we, we had to walk around this huge reservoir in eastern Colorado to get to where the ranger station was to initiate rescue efforts for our wives, who we left at the campsite uh-huh. on the other side of the lake. Oh and gosh. we hope they still had some appreciation for us. <laughs> came back to get them after that that long day of walking and then directing people back to our campsite. Mm. There is a little twist to the story. After we were rescued and on our way back to Denver, Mm -hmm. I did get a call from the ranger a couple weeks later in my office phone. And he said, well, we found your boat. And it had blown away from where we had it on the shore and sunk. 
Well, it was just Sunk. a small little rowboat, so they were able to get it out, and we went back up and got it. At the time, we I was we were moving, and I had to leave the uh, boat with my dad, who lived in West Denver. My dad and mom. It wasn't more than a couple days later, somebody came by and stole that boat. And oh, no. the so the story, that's where the story ends. I, I have never tried to get or own and do anything with a boat ever since. Ever since. So, so that's the kind of personal story I tell. But what I do is mm-hmm. I make sure there's a good conflict in the story. Mm-hmm. Funny, that's even better. But the conflict has to be there. Otherwise, it's just a narration of me going to the Dairy Queen to buy an ice cream cone yes. or something like that. It's just an event. It's just so it's, this happened and this happened and this happened and there's and, no story. The resolution can be quick and it can be as simple as, well, somebody stole a boat. And so that those are, but yeah, I got to give, have good detail in between. Yes. That's that's relevant. The relevant details. Yeah. Yeah. So often I hear people tell stories where they include too much irrelevant detail, particularly at the beginning, setting up the situation when what you really want to do is get quickly to the conflict. You got to it quickly as you were telling that. I didn't know a lot about where you were, who you're with, how you'd gotten there, but you were on the shore of a lake camping and your boat blew away. So we got into that conflict, that striving to get the boat back right away. Yeah. Yeah. We had an experience similar to that with a canoe blowing away from the shore of a lake when we were camping in Montana. Um, And we spent a lot of time looking for it. And then finally the woman at the neighboring campsite said, I think I found your canoe. (laughs) She had been across the lake in her kayak and had seen our canoe and recognized it yeah. since we were camping next to her. And she managed to uh, get her her rope over the canoe and tow it back with her kayak. <laughs> we were very I'm not sure how that. The, the, game, the game warden got the boat out of the water, but he said it was in about 10 feet of water in a little cove in the reservoir. Really? And yeah. he managed to get it up out of the water. All that effort, and then someone stole it. Someone stole it. I <laughs> hope they had better luck with it than I did. Oh, I should hope so. Yes, or not. <laughs> if, <you're, laughs> if you want, maybe the boat is cursed, and they they're 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 hoping someone will steal it from them. <laughs> maybe so, maybe so. Um, so this idea that a story has to have a a conflict and a resolution. Um, when you're telling stories about, um, let's say, a, about the the pollution problems that you were trying to address. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I imagine you found yourself telling a story of something that was as yet unresolved, right? That's Still right. trying to get More. to the end of this story. Being unresolvable. We have, as I said, we had the number one air pollution problem in Denver. The brown cloud. Brown cloud, which was really carbon monoxide. It was kind of embedded in the brown cloud. Mm-hmm. And, EPA was ready to come in, and, and under the law, they could impose all kinds of sanctions on on transportation, on growth. And mm. elected officials did not want that. So they no. we did everything we could to get pollution down. One of them was a voluntary no-drive day. Right. And, this, this, and during the early phases, we went out to a lot of uh, service, service clubs, optimists, uh, uh, Rotary to talk to the people there, the, the men, the women 
about what this program was, what we were asking people to do voluntarily. And believe me, the questions that came back from that were pretty, pretty, I don't know, sarcastic. Ah. <laughs> I People were not receptive to the idea. Not too receptive, or they just didn't believe it would work. One mm. one fellow in, in a, a meeting in Littleton looked at me after I'd finished this presentation about how we really had to deal with carboxyhemoglobin in our blood mm. and <laughs> driving less. And he said, you know, all this is trying to push a peanut to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, it may seem like it, but we got to do something. It's kind of like the starfish story, you know? Yeah, that's right. I helped that one. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Interesting. So um, your story, some of them are personal, like your, your camping and losing the boat story. Some of them are uh, adapted from, from culture. Some of them have to do with current events. Um, you mentioned to me about a story having to do with a, a colleague of yours yeah. and a spider collection. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a story, again, a story about imagination and ideas. Ah, okay. And, Can we hear it? Yes. I'll try, try and make it very brief. I, I have a good friend who's also a storyteller going into schools and, and senior facilities whose name is John Paul. And he's from England, and he works at the Museum of Nature and Science on some, on some kind of scientific endeavor. But he has an office mate who is an arachnologist. She studies spiders. Mm. Her name is Pauline, Dr. Pauline, she was called. Okay. Now, Dr. Pauline loved spiders. I mean, she always had loved spiders, I guess, from the time she was a little girl. <laughs> and one of the her favorite activities on a weekend would be go out to some uh, park or some uh, some area and collect spiders if she could find them take them back to her apartment and study everything she could about the spider take notes and try to determine what it ate and all these kinds of things mm. and then she would take the spider well she had a pretty large collection of spiders mm. over time Live spiders. Live spiders. In addition, she had a, a pet spider. A pet spider. She had a pet tarantula. Oh. This was not, I have a picture. Excuse me for going off screen. This is the spider. Spider. Spiders. <laughs> That, well, remember that a lot of people are just listening to this program, so describe to me what you were just okay. showing. Well, a tarantula, of course, is, is an arachnoid. It's an eight-legged insect. This tarantula, it must be have a body of about four inches, and each of the legs is about another four inches. So it's about an eight-inch across insect. Wow. Anyway, she had this as a pet. And okay. She would uh, exercise it every night. She'd take exercise it out of the carpet it. and... Yeah, but teach it yoga. Pauline <laughs> was quite a spider lover, I'll tell you. And she wow. even fed it live crickets. Well, finally, the owner of the building came to her and said, these spiders have to go. They're, they're a health hazard. Oh, no. And the uh, Pauline went back to my friend Paul and asked for help because 
Pauline knew that that Paul was the only one who could handle spiders. Mm. Well, she made arrangements for movers to come in to take all the furniture, and she and Paul would move the spiders, all in little glass jars or little little, uh, plastic cages. So her solution was to move out of that apartment. Yeah, that's that's well. She was ordered to move out. She, she was, was ordered to move, not just the spiders. She had to move out. She was evicted, and and all the spiders with it. With her. oh my goodness! So she and Paul were beginning to move the spiders out when the movers, these big burly guys who like to who move things, noticed all these spiders, and they basically refused to do any more work. Oh, no. The spiders were gone. So they left, and they had to work out an alternative plan. Where it went to next week, the spiders had to be moved out first, and then the the furniture would be moved out. And that was the way it worked out the next weekend. Well, Penelope, the tarantula, was in a big glass aquarium, the kind we we put fish in, Mm -hmm. a five-gallon size. Mm -hmm. And it, it... Somehow this terrarium was placed on the corner of a piece of furniture next to the door. Oh, no. Well, someone came in the door and, of course, knocked off this term and and it went crashing to the floor. Pauline was in terror, and she ran over and turned over Penelope, and Penelope had about a one-inch shard of glass stick in the middle of its chest. Oh. And then Pauline did one of the silliest things anyone would ever do. She removed the shard of glass. Removed it. And the spider started bleeding profusely. You know that spiders have green blood? I did not know that. Just almost exactly like hemoglobin, except the metal ingredient, the, the, the metal part is instead of being iron, which is what human hemoglobin is, is actually copper. copper. So that's why it's, mm. it's green. Green, right? Instead of and okay. they didn't, she didn't know what to do. So one of the movers, who was pretty engaged this time, watching this whole event happen, said, I'll go out and get, some, get our first aid kit. So he <laughs> ran out to the truck, and he got his first aid kit. He came in and took out a big Band-Aid and laid it across the spider and Everyone thought, well, maybe that'll work. Of course, it didn't. Pretty soon, the spider was still bleeding. And everyone, no one wanted to watch that big spider die. And then my friend Paul said, I had the biggest brainstorm of my life. And he ran out to his car and got a bottle of super glue. Super glue. Super glue. Of course. Inspiration. And he came super in and the rescue. had the super glue on the wound and it closed it right up. Closed it up. Well, they all got everything straightened away and left Pauline to take care of her spider. The next Monday, Pauline called or talked to my friend Paul again. She said, you know, the spider, Penelope made it. I think she's going to be all right. Matter of fact, I'm feeding her extra helpings of cricket and she did she kept feeding them crickets and crickets and more crickets until spiders don't have an internal skeleton so when they reach a certain size they automatically expel or they automatically shed their exterior skeleton exoskeleton right and that's what the picture i have that i showed you 
It's the exterior skeleton of this spider. And, and somehow, Paul was able to collect a picture, a little bit of orange, of, of green blood, to show how it came from the spider. And Paul proudly gave me that at a meeting of our storytellers. <laughs> tell wow. us how this was his greatest moment of inspiration ever. His greatest moment of inspiration to to suture up the wounded spider with super glue. And yeah. did Penelope go on to live a, a, a long and happy arachnoid he, life? He lived quite a while after that. I, I didn't follow those details, but the resolution, <laughs> of course. Yeah, she made it. She made it through it the crisis. Worked. It the all worked. worked. The super glue worked. <laughs> wow. What a fascinating story. And, and and quite a bit different from how the sky got full of stars. Yeah. And yet and you can see observing, observing the situation, mm -hmm. being having enough enough ideas at the time. I think science, a lot of scientific endeavors, having ideas that come come out, out of a spontaneous or and maybe an improv experience. Mm. And then using that to advance the project or advance the story. Being a good observer and using tying that to imagination so you can advance the story, yeah, exactly. which really, in many ways, is what science is all about. It's about advancing the story, yeah. solving the mysteries. This has been just fascinating, Ray. Good, we're, wrapping, we're, we're nearing the end of the episode, and I wonder, is there something else you would like to tell the, the scientists and other people who give technical presentations who are listening? What is one thing they should take away in terms of marrying story and science? Well, the only thing I can say is tell you a quick story. Uh, I once went with my good friend, who I still tell stories with, to a uh, meeting of dry cleaning operators. Dry cleaning operators. Dry cleaning okay. operators. At that time, they were facing a amount of federal regulation to control their emissions from their facilities. Mm -hmm. Sure. So they had, the local association had set up a meeting to hear from the EPA and the state on how to meet the regulations, meet, how to be in compliance. How to be compliant, right. Yes. Well, the federal official, who shall remain unnamed, had brought, brought one handout, and it was a one-page sheet of paper that listed all the federal regulations, the code of federal regulation numbers that applied, and there were about 20 of them. So once and you said, paper, well, I, I don't have time to go through all these, so I'm just going to pass these out, and you can go read them and check them out. And oh, no. <laughs> this should help you be in compliance with the state regulations and EPA requirements. My friend Nick stood up after that, mm -hmm. and uh, he wasn't going to do anything like that at all. He's, he's even more casual about science than I am, but he basically just told them, I want to help you. And tell me what your your problem is. I'll, I he passed out his business cards, and I can certainly advise you on the correct way of meeting the regulations. Mm. Most of the members in this group were Korean, and their English and their language skills were very very limited. So by giving this, by making this connection with them individually, giving mm -hmm. them 
each of them his card with his office phone number. He was able to deal with questions they might have in a way that was comfortable for them, too. Mm. Mm. Okay. So two, two different approaches. One is, go read all these regulations. The other is, I want to help you. Yeah. It, mm-hmm. There actually is <laughs> someone in government who says, I'm from government and I'm here. <laughs> I'm here to help. <laughs> all right. And the takeaway from that story for our listeners the primary takeaway from that would be? The primary takeaway would be any, any situation requires creativity and flexibility. So any you have situation. to, mm-hmm. first of all, judge your audience, know where their level of understanding is and yes. where their level of even their level of uh, language is and tailor your presentation, tailor what you're going to say to hit that target. Otherwise, you're not going to be successful. You'll have maybe a deck full of PowerPoint graphs and charts, and nobody will know what what they mean. The way I love to put that, Ray, is that your information goes nowhere if you don't meet the needs of your audience. Yeah. Yeah. What I say is it's not a matter of getting the talk said. It's getting the talk heard. Getting the talk heard. I like that. I like that. Well, I believe we've had a fun time today getting some of your stories heard and some of your experiences. And I'll bet that um, my audience has been enjoying those. And I know I have. So thank you for being on the show with me, Ray. I'm glad to glad to help out. If any of your audience would like to have uh, additional storytelling workshops or programs, I'd be glad to see what we can work out. How can they reach you? My, re- my probably best reach at just my email, Raymond E. Moore, that's R-A-Y-M-O-N-D-E-M-O-H-R, at gmail.com. At gmail.com. Raymond yeah. E. Moore at gmail.com. Yeah. And people can reach you in order to find out more about storytelling workshops. And more about storytelling and these different uh, storytelling programs, like the senior storytelling program as well. Very good. Very good. I'm sure that our that my audience members will be happy to know about that. And I'm happy that you were able to take the time and be on the show with me. Sure. You've been listening to Ray Moore on The Power of Story and Science with your host, David Odie. The Power of Story and Science is a biweekly podcast that you can find on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you like to find your podcasts, including in video form on YouTube. I always enjoy hearing from my listeners, and I would love to hear your ideas for topics or interview guests for future episodes. To reach me, just go to storyandscience.com. Thanks for listening. This has been The Power of Story and Science. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend, leave us a review, or so that you don't miss anything, Subscribe at Podbean or wherever you like to get your podcasts. This program is a production of Speaking of Solutions, LLC. Theme music by Kevin Lufkin. I'm David Odie. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.